All right, well, we're in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 13. So 13, 13 would be a good, uh, good way to remember it. Um, and you know, it's been a couple weeks uh, since we we've left off, but Paul had started off on his missionary journey, his first missionary journey. And it was, you remember, he was in, in Antioch, came back to Antioch after a short trip to Jerusalem. And uh, as the leadership was praying and fasting, um, they felt led by the Spirit that this is time for Paul and Barnabas to go. And uh, so they, they made their first trip. They went you know, not too far, sailed to Cyprus. And uh, that's what we looked at last time, a couple weeks ago. And uh, Paul and Barnabas made their way to the east coast of Cyprus, made their way all the way to the west coast of Cyprus, even had an opportunity, was invited by the proconsul, which was uh, kind of the, the governor over that, that district, um, appointed by by Rome, uh, to have a hearing of what Paul had to say. And when he shared the gospel with him, there was a, a man, a Jewish um, magician, we talked about that uh, when we met as well, what that looked like, um, that had kind of opposed him. And, and you know, Paul just openly rebuked him and, and, and blinded him. I mean, it wasn't him that blinded him, but uh, the Lord did. And because of that, it says the proconsul believed. And that's where we, we uh, ended up. In verse 12 of Acts chapter 13, it says, Then, well, actually, we'll, we'll, can, we'll go back in verse 11. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, this magician. Um, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're going to see actually in a couple instances today that the people are going to be astonished by what is being said. We may not actually get to it today, but that's the next kind of section that we're we're getting to is Paul makes his way, Paul and Barnabas make their way to the next area. Um, Chapter 13 is one of those transitional. It's not only the first missionary journey, but Saul now is referred to as Paul, and so we'll just refer to him as Paul from now on. Uh, You start seeing a flip in names. It was Barnabas and Saul, and now you're going to start seeing Paul and Barnabas, that Paul actually gets into to a leadership role, which is kind of amazing. You know, as the Lord restored Peter, and we saw him pretty prominent in the first, you know, 12 chapters or so of um, Acts, uh, and, and then kind of now fading away, it's Saul who was, you know, he, he was a, a brash person, uh, maybe like Peter, um, uh, came under fire a lot from, from opposition, and then uh, Barnabas went and sought him to help become a ministry companion, and we're actually going to see that kind of reverse, where then Paul takes the leadership role and Barnabas becomes his companion. And so, and that's kind of probably fitting for, for who we see Barnabas is as an encourager. Um, so it's kind of what we're thinking about uh, what's going on and, and their travels. Um, there's a few things that we're going to infer from the text, and just geographically and historically about how they make their way from one place to another. Um, have you guys ever taken a trip, um, but maybe gone out of your way uh, for a particular reason? Like, you know, say you're going from here to Chicago. I don't know why. Um, you're going to drive to Chicago. Anyone ever driven to Chicago? I have, but not from here. Um, so your destination of choice, maybe a little bit further, but you drove out of the way for a particular reason. Has anyone ever had to do that for a particular reason? Okay. What was your reason that you drove out of the way? Okay, all right, so to get off the freeway and see some of the small towns, was it worth it? I thought so. My, my wife at that time did not. Okay, okay. 
So sometimes it's get, to get off the beaten path. Has anyone ever taken a scenic drive somewhere? Okay. Um, either purposefully or not. Um, so now, now with the, you know, the advent of, of GPS, sometimes you're redirected and you're like, where am I going? Who lives here in these towns? And then you kind of have it as an opportunity to see um, the places that, that people go. Um, has anyone ever made a trip and gone out of the way to stop and see a friend? Okay. Usually that's, no. <laughs> You're like, no, I am always point A to point B. Um, I'm like that too. I, you know, it's probably in, well, I don't know. Um, I would say, uh, it's, it's usually one of those, like I'm going from here to there. And even if we can minimize our bathroom trips, you know, kids, can we get on all on the same page? We're just going to get there because we want to enjoy the destination. But there is a part of the journey as well. Um, has anyone ever tried to take a more direct route, uh, but maybe wish that they hadn't? What's that? Sure. Stuck in traffic. (laughs) Wish you were like, you know, I shouldn't have gone to work today. It's just, (laughs) I'm just going to give up. Uh, you know, when GPS first came out, did you guys ever like play around with the settings and do like direct route and you're like where, you know, the shortest route and then see where it took you and you're like, okay, it may be shortest, but it's not necessarily the best route. So we're going to see that today as we, uh, we, we get kind of into Paul and, and Barnabas's journey um, to where they're going next. So it says, verse 13, Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Everything starts with a P in this area. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but then they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, so if this was like, you know, a quiz that you had to take, you'd have to come up with some mnemonic device. They went from Paphos to Perga, to, which is in Pamphylia. Anyway, so um, you don't have to know that or memorize that, but we'll kind of go over some of the, the places that they went. All right, Paphos was uh, a town that they were in on the west end of Cyprus. And so when they were, went from the east end of Cyprus, I guess that's west end. Okay, so they're going this way. All right, so, so you guys can see it. All right, so they're coming from Antioch. And they sail over to Cyprus, and they make their way all the way over to the west end. And as they get to the west end, they've covered all of Cyprus and decide they need to go to the next place. Do you guys remember, well, it says that they go to Perga, which would have been directly north. Um, it's possible that they would have stopped at a port kind of along the way and sailed along to Perga. Perga is not actually on the coast. It's about 12 miles inland, but it was a very, it was a, a major city in that region, but almost directly north of where uh, Paphos would have been. Now, I kind of mentioned last time, which is about three weeks ago, so it's, you know, can you remember that far? And it, it was a historical tidbit. Could have been lost in the other historical tidbits. Do you know why they might have gone up to that area? So we're going to kind of do some inferring. Like, why, why are they making the journey where they're making the journey? And we'll actually then step back and say, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you would say they're being directed by the Holy Spirit, but how is the Holy Spirit directing them? They direct them, you know, the Holy Spirit directs us in a lot of practical reasons and practical purposes, right? You know, you know, how did you get to Georgia? And, you know, we've talked about this in different times. Well, I got a job here, or I met someone, or this is where I grew up, right? Very practical reasons brought you here, but you'd also say that the Lord directed you to get to where you're going. Um, so why Perga? And we're going to infer a few things from, from why that. Do you guys remember? What's that? So somebody was from there, so that's good. That's good. It wasn't Paul and it wasn't Barnabas. Um, Barnabas was from 
Cyprus. And so we said last time that that might have been the practical reason why they made it. So it, it, the scripture says the Holy Spirit directed them to Cyprus. Um, but for very practical reasons, that's where Barnabas was from. And so it makes a lot of sense. Like go to a place where you can at least have some place to stop by, you know, you know, see some, see some friends, get some food. You know, you're not just going to complete area and just being dropped off and like, all right, let's hopefully that this works. Um, when you think about missionaries going to a particular, you know, area, it's not usually good to just kind of close your eyes and point to a place on the map and say like, the Lord needs somebody there. Now, the Lord certainly can work in that way and he can certainly direct your finger and your, uh, you know, your ambition to do that. But usually you go to a place where the Lord stirs your heart for a particular people group. Um, there's an opportunity in a particular area. Um, you might have some, you know, and there might be an opportunity that's not quite presented itself, but you feel like, hey, I know some people here. This would be a good city to have a starting point. Um, and then we could build a church from this, this region. So they go to Cyprus. Uh, when they left Cyprus, so the very end of their trip, they meet this proconsul, and his name was um, Paulus Sergius. Um, and so he, that was the name of the proconsul. We talked about him last time. But I mentioned that he had, there was a, in this area uh, near Perga, uh, even today there is a museum and uh, that has a stone with his name on it. It says Sergii Pauli. Um, which is this proconsul's title and name, and that uh, there is a stone that is, was, is in this museum that indicates who this historical figure, outside of just histor- historical in scripture, but he was historical in, in Roman history, um, which is why his stone is in this particular museum, uh, that he would have had an estate there. And so we talked about last time that it might have been because this guy believed that he said, hey, it would be awesome if you could go up and share the gospel with, um, with my family there. Now, we don't hear anything about what happened along those, that route, so we don't know if that happened uh, at any case. But there are some practical, practical purposes that we'll talk about that the route that they take, where they end up, they end up at Antioch and they're going to go to a few other places along the way. And we'll have to kind of uncover those as we go along. Um, but they have, you know kind of a route that they're going to take. And so they get to Perga. Um, and so, again, there, there was a stone that, that is, uh, was found that says maybe this guy had an estate there. And so this might have been a good landing place for them to be, to set up, set up camp for at least a night and then, you know, move along uh, up to the interior until where we find that they actually make it and stop is in another city named Antioch. But we'll get there in a second. Um, Perga had a large Jewish population, so that would have been another reason that they might have stopped there. We don't see that they share the gospel, but on the way back, that they do. Um, so on the way up, they're just kind of getting their bearings uh, to figure out um, where they are. To get to Perga, when you land at the port, um, it's about 12 miles inland, and as you go, there's like this rock kind of wall that you have to go through. It kind of looks like a washed-out riverbed, but they have wa- uh, rock walls that are, you know... Um, well overhead height that you have to kind of go through. And it would have been a, a, a you know, somewhat tough journey to make it to this town, which would have been a large, Jew, uh, large population, not only in the Roman colony, um, but also had a, a large Jewish population with them. Well, it says, uh, they made it to Paphos. They came to Perga, which is in the district of Pamphylia. 
And it says, John had left them and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, who is John? Remember his other name? Mark, yeah. So he goes by John, John Mark, and then he's also the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And so it says that Mark left him. Now at this point, we don't know why Mark left him, but we do know that later on, that because he left these two, that it would cause some friction between Paul and Barnabas a little bit later, that they actually are going to split the, you know, the dynamic duo that they were, uh, and Barnabas would go with Mark and Paul would go with, uh, with yeah, so a little bit later. And so we'll, we'll uncover that and look at that a little bit why. And there's, um, there's some inferences, you know, why did Mark, you know, why did John split off from the group? You know, some say maybe he was homesick. Um, when we look at where they're going to go, uh, it's going to be a very tough journey, and it could be that they that he wasn't prepared for it. Um, some think that uh, maybe that they got sick and um, that he turned back. Some believe that um, because Paul was uh, his, when, when we see his intent when he goes to these areas is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that Mark has a problem with that. Um, I don't think that that's the issue at that time because... You know, that's what the Lord said. This is what I've called you out to be. So we really don't know, but any of those could really be, could be plausible reasons. Even if it was something as like he wasn't ready for the journey and had to turn back. Um, you know, I've been on several tough hiking trips where some people actually turn back. And I remember it just caused like some issues between the group. It was like, you guys can keep moving. You know, it's, it's not a problem. And they just kind of give up and you feel bad because you're kind of like caught in this middle, like, well, do we keep going or do we go back? Like, what's the right thing um, for what's going on? I'm, I imagine it's something along those lines. But again, we don't know the reason. All we know that he turns back at this moment. He goes back to Jerusalem. Why does he go back to Jerusalem? What's that? That's where it's from, right? And who's uh, his mom, remember, was the house where Peter, when he escaped from jail, went to and they were praying for him. So that was uh, where he would have gone back to and, and would have been able to, to kind of go back home. Um, and again, if you think about it, you know, this is all new territory for some of these people. Uh, and the, the march where they're going to make it is going to be a tough journey. So um, he returns back to Jerusalem, but it says they went on from Perga and they camped to Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, Antioch in Pisidia is not the same Antioch that they left from, which was, you know, north of Jerusalem. Um, there are 16 different Antiochs. It's kind of like, I don't know. Is Springfield one of those towns? I'm not sure which, like, what town in the U.S. Is, like, has the most names. But you can think about Columbus, Georgia, or Columbus, Ohio. As a kid, when, you know, whenever somebody said they went to Washington, I was always confused. Is it Washington, D.C. or Washington State? Um, context would have told you, you know, where they were from. Um, but for the most part, you know, there are all these Antiochs. And they made it to Antioch, which was up in this region um, called Pisidia, uh, We'll get to that in a second. The route that you can take from Antioch up to Pisidia was along a river. Now, the Roman road, so the Romans would have built uh, roads or, you know, I guess made roads along the way uh, as they marched their troops. If they were going to go from um, Perga up to Antioch, uh, there was a road that went around this mountain range, um, and it would have been a little bit longer, but it would have been easier for them to navigate. Uh, most historians think that they made their way directly up from uh, Pisidia or from Perga up to Antioch. 
directly along the river. If they did that, they would have had to gone over a mountain range. They would have had to cross uh, rivers, um, and it would have been a much more arduous journey. Some historians think that that was probably the route that they took because there are, there's evidences along that route that there are Jewish settlements along the way. And so it would have made sense for them to go, even though it was a harder journey to take, um, they would have had places that they could have stopped along the way as they made their way up to Antioch. Again, we're not sure, but this is from, from histor- history and archaeology that you kind of pull in and say, well, what was the route that they took? Anyway, the way that they made it was from, uh, from Perga up to Antioch. But I think that they probably took a tough journey because when you, if you ever read, well, we'll get to it in a second, but when we get to what Paul had talked about when he talked about his journeys, he mentions a lot of the things that you would have found along the, the road um, from there. And it could have been, again, a reason why Mark would have turned back. Again, you know, sometimes you, you, you make a choice to take a more scenic route and you think, I should have gone a different way. Or you go, like, we're going to go for a hike. You know, I remember taking my boys uh, up to Blood Mountain. And I don't know, it was like a third of the way up. My son's like, are we almost there? And I'm like, just a little further. And for like two hours, I was like, just a little further. Um, and so if he knew, he would have been, he would have like turned around. But uh, we made it all the way to the top, made it all the way to the bottom. It was definitely worth it. Um, but if I knew exactly how high it would have been, I might have, you know, decided to turn back. Um, because I, I wasn't exactly sure. I wasn't exactly sure. So I knew the top of Blood Mountain is one way, and we're going to get to the top. Uh, so, uh, so heads to Antioch. Um, it's about 100 miles north of Perga. Again, there's two routes that they could have taken. Uh, Antioch in Pisidia was a Roman colony. It was made up of Greeks, Jews, and Phrygians, uh, which is the area that technically... Antioch would have been in, and so there's some debate as far as like what district it would have been in. Was it actually in in Pisidia, or was it in this district called Phrygia, which is in the area of Galatia? Um, anyway, you guys don't need to know all these things. There's no quiz on this, but um, but it's made up of all these different areas. So people from from Greece, uh, the Jews in about 300 BC, uh, the Seuclids, when they had captured Jerusalem, they had actually transported some Jews up to this area. And so there would have been a large Jewish settlement. Again, why, why are Paul and Barnabas going to this area? Why are they going to either take a long route uh, through the Roman road to make it to Antioch, or even this arduous journey, which a lot of people think that's the way that they made it, in order to get to this town in Antioch, which really doesn't have much there. It's, it, was, it was built for a military reason. It was built for a, kind of on a crossroads right in the center of Turkey, uh, or, or Asia Minor at this time, and um, there wasn't much there. It wasn't like this is where a hub of activity. It was a hub only in the sense that people kind of passed through there, um, but that was it. So why are they making it there is because that there is a large Jewish population that happens to be there. There is a developed synagogue that happens to be there, and in their minds, you know, where are they going to go? Let's go to a place that we can actually actually have uh, maybe a, a stopping point as we build our ministry. You're going to later see that uh, one of the routes that they can take to get to um, Antioch is actually going through Paul's hometown of Tarsus. So you can either go up, straight up these, this mountain range along this river in a very tough journey, or you can go a longer route over to Tarsus, which would have been... 
yeah, this part of, of Turkey and then made your way down to, uh, to Jerusalem or an- the other Antioch uh, that they were from. And so we're actually going to see that it's kind of a, uh, a strategic place as far as ministry. And then when they go from there, they can, they can branch off to the west, which would be that way, branch off to the west and he- make, make their way all of through Asia, which is Turkey. Um, and even if the Lord provides a way, maybe even make it to Greece. And that's where we're going to actually see the Lord open up an opportunity to go there. And so for them, you know, it sounds like a practical place to go, um, a good place to, to, to start um, a ministry uh, as they're kind of seeing where the Lord directs them. So... Kind of in summary of these first couple verses, they likely had a destination in mind, and they're arduously trying to make their way to this place. And I'm just going to read real quick, if you, if you want to turn there. It's, it's kind of one of those places that, you know, a portion of Scripture that is uh, very helpful to remember, because it influences a lot of, uh, you know, what was Paul going through. In 2 Corinthians 11... Um, you know, Paul is kind of defending himself uh, and his ministry to the Corinthians. And so, you know, you, you've heard this passage numerous times where he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. One times I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea. And this is where I kind of see that, you know, you can kind of get the flavor of, of, of this travel. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, which would have been on their, their, uh, their travels. Danger from robbers, because the route that they took, if they took the, the direct route, um, it was frequently a place where bandits were found because it wouldn't have been an area that the Romans would have policed too well. So there were settlements along the way, but from getting from one place to another was a place where bandits often were. Um, and that's what he says. Danger from Gentiles. This is definitely a Gentile area mixed with Jews. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. And he continues along with that. But you see several of those things right in there just as they make their journey up. Now, they've got fresh legs on this, this trip. And uh, they're continuing to go. Um, but I know that they are, when they make it to Antioch, they're hopeful that the Lord will open up an opportunity for them. And that's what we're going to see next. So it says in uh, the end of verse 14, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After a reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so where did they go on the, on the, the Sabbath? The synagogue, okay, yeah, so I'm going to ask that question a ton of times, and you're going to have the same answer. They went to the synagogue. That was always where they went when they went to the new, a new city. Why did they go to the synagogue? What's that? It's a what? Okay, good. So they, a common point of reference, uh, they can reason from the scriptures. Eric, did you say something similar? Or? <coughs> similar, okay. So... Um, yeah, so if you went to a new place, where would you go? It's kind of one of those things like, would you go to a synagogue? <laughs> would you go to, what's that? Go to a church, okay. Um, find some community, find a place to, to set up. Um, so when we think about they can go there and reason from the scriptures, um, that is 
that is essentially what they're going to do, but that shouldn't be their, that is not going to be their primary, I don't know how to say it, not their primary motive, at least at first. That, again, is going to be their eventual goal, that whoever that you encounter, whoever that you see, you're going to want to eventually reason with them from the scriptures if they don't follow Christ. And hopefully, you know, the Lord will open up their eyes and that they will follow Christ. You know, is our reference point to get to scripture. But, you know, where do you go? Um, so for them, it would have been a common point. Uh, the synagogue would have been a place, uh, a civic center, not only for, you know, their worship, but it also would have been kind of a place where the people would have met together. Uh, just remember, as when they were in Jerusalem, they continued to meet near the temple because the courts outside the temple were a meeting point for a lot of people to either go in and to worship, to go in and to pray, to go in to make offerings, to just kind of connect with each other. So it was kind of like the local civic center for those that would have had a common cultural background, right? And so for them, being Jewish, that would have been something that they could have easily drifted into. They could have then you know, been able to hopefully form relationships and get an opportunity to then share the gospel. And that's exactly what we're going to see um, when they go there. But uh, the synagogue, we're actually going to see, especially with the, the place, is that there's not only Jews there, but you're going to see some Gentiles there as well. Not just, you know, uh, pagan Gentiles, but those Gentiles that are open to what God has to say to them. Now, when they go to, you know, this isn't a predominantly Jewish area, but there is a large Jewish population, so they're going to go to the synagogue. When they go to a, when Paul goes to a large Greek population where a synagogue hasn't necessarily been established, where is it that Paul goes? He goes to the marketplace, right? And so that would have been the place where the people are, you know, connecting with each other, talking with each other, and so he's going to form those relationships in order to then, hopefully, get a hearing so he can talk to people about Christ. So when they go there, they sat down, right? They just says they sat down. They're going to be a part of the worship service there on the Sabbath. Um, after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, so the Law and the Prophets, after they're read, these are the Jewish Scriptures. The Law would have been the Torah, and the Prophets would have been the Prophets. And then you also have the Psalms uh, as kind of the, the third book and uh, that are typically read. But those two are typically read on a particular Sabbath. Usually those are broken up into different readings. And so one would be read every week, every Sabbath, um, and you would have gotten through all of them. There's about 53 or 54 um, segments that the, these passages are broken up to. Um, some would even, we'll, we'll kind of talk about it in a second, um, but some would say because of how they're broken up and what then Paul says later, you might actually even be able to identify the time of year that it was that they, they came there. So I'll, I'll mention that in just a second when we get to that reading. It says that the rulers of the synagogue, after the, the reading, so usually there was a reading. Uh, well, first there was the, the recitation of the Shema. Then there was a reading from the Scripture. And then there would have been kind of a pause, and people would have kind of shared ideas and you know, talked you know, amongst themselves. Sometimes it was to talk about things that are going on. And then there would have been kind of a message after that. During this time, this kind of break between the reading and the message, um, the rulers of the synagogue, which typically there's one ruler of a synagogue, so this might imply that there are other guys that ruled that are still kind of connected, so the former rulers and the current ruler, just somebody who oversaw what was going on, that they saw Paul and Barnabas and that they you know, sent a message to them 
asking them if they wanted to speak. Um, now, sometimes we would think, you know, if somebody said in a church service, you know, is anybody visiting here? You know, and somebody raised their hand. You're like, hey, would you love to come up and speak <laughs> to everybody, right? We don't, we don't think about it in that way. Um, but they would have, you know, because of who Paul and Barnabas was, you know, they, they've gotten into town presumably before the Sabbath, that it might have been heard of who they were. Um, they might have been dressed in a particular way that would have indicated, because uh, remember Paul um, you know, was in a, lo- a line of uh, Pharisees, um, so he could possibly have been recognized, um, but for whatever reason, sometimes people came into town, and because they are traveling, it might be that they are traveling and they're able to bring a word that they are, are somebody who studied. Um, but they get a message to them and say, hey, would you like to bring a word of encouragement for our people? So this wasn't something that was uncommon to happen um, in, a, in a, a particular Sabbath um, that somebody would be asked to speak that is traveling through. Why don't we typically do that? <laughs> right, you guys, <laughs> and so you laugh, yeah. You never know what you're going to get. Usually you don't want to open it up, you know. And for these people, they don't know what they're going to get. Um, so, uh, you know, typically, out of all their history, you know, you know pagans aren't usually coming into a, a Jewish synagogue, nor are they asked to speak in front of people. But usually, it's somebody who's going to deliver a word on what was read and, and Jesus was given that opportunity numerous times. If you read in Matthew 4.23 or Matthew 9.35 and a couple other places, it said that Jesus went throughout all the cities teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. And that news spread about who he was. That wherever Jesus went, they asked him to teach in the synagogue. And you know, frequently, they marveled at what he said. Um, how many people would have been in that synagogue? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you had to have a a certain amount of people. I'm trying to remember. You had to have at least, I think, 20 people to, um, I think that's the number. I have to look into that one. Was it 10? Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily 600. It could have been it could have been larger like that, but yeah, I don't I don't know the Jew, the Jewish population uh, at that time. Um, what's that? So yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because um, I don't know if I have it later or I just skipped over it. Is um, they may have known Paul at that time? Again, remember the Jews travel back into Jerusalem, and Paul would have had a name amongst Jews uh, at that time. Another reason that they might have been in this area is if you read in Acts, I think it was 227, is when Peter is delivering his message to Pentecost, it says that there are there were people from uh, Phrygia and Pisidia that were in the area, you know, as he listed all the different areas. So you have people that are in that area that were converted at that time that might have gone back. And again, we don't know any of the details, but again, there might be people that maybe that's the routes that they're taking along the way that they, they're hearing of these people and they have an end goal in mind. <clears throat> so it's very possible that they would have heard of, of, of them. Exactly. But at this time, it's kind of one of those things, but... Um, they might have known him, but maybe not have known him recently. <clears throat> or if they knew of him, because remember, they're meeting in the synagogue, so they haven't heard the gospel, or at least, you know, they're, they're not a church. They're still a synagogue. 
Um, and Paul's last interaction in Jerusalem wasn't a good one, right? It was, it was basically the, the brothers had to say, hey, why don't you leave town and go up to Tarsus? And that was about eight to nine years before this time. So some time has elapsed. Um, they, again, might know Paul. We see later on that Paul uses some of his credentials to kind of gain access to certain things. Um, he'll use his Roman citizenship to, uh, you know, rebuke somebody for beating him. Um, it's possible that he said, you know, he might have said, hey, I studied under Gamaliel. And um, he uses that a little bit later. Uh, and so they're like, oh, Gamaliel, yeah, we know him. If you studied under him, you know, come up and talk. Again, all these things are inferences as far as, far as who they are. But they're def- he's given a platform. He's given the opportunity to speak. Jesus was given the opportunity to speak. In uh, Luke 4, I'm going to read that. Um, and this is when he goes to Nazareth. You guys remember uh, what happened. This wasn't one of those positive interactions because he's, he's in his hometown. Um, but uh, it says, uh, we'll read in verse 14 um, in Luke 4. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is after he was tempted in the desert. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Okay, so he's... You know, speak in our synagogues, and people are like, wow. Um, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He had sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they started to question, isn't that Joseph's son? And you know, you guys know the rest of, of how that happened. But you see that Jesus went into the synagogue. It doesn't say that he read from the law. He read from uh, the prophets. <clears throat> but he was given the scroll to read. So um, sometimes people were asked to read. And then sometimes people were asked to... He didn't immediately explain what went on. He just sat down and he said... It's been fulfilled. Like that, that was his message. And people are like, whoa, um, that's bold. And then, uh, you know, and then you see the reaction like, wait a minute, isn't that, don't I know this guy? Um, and then, you know, they, they reject him in Nazareth. And so Paul and Barnabas, you know, do the same thing. They sat there, they were asked to, to explain it, and they stand up. And uh, this is what, <clears throat> what they say. Well, I guess to kind of before that, just kind of, Kind of get our thoughts, you know, wrapped around, right? So first, Paul and Barnabas are, are headed to an area for a very practical reason, a Jewish center where they're going to, um, you know, uh, hopefully get an opportunity to speak, right? Um, they went to an area, a place specifically in that city where they would have access and influence, um, and then you know possibly have an opportunity to speak. So we kind of think of like our, you know, how can we relate this to? our own lives, um, where are the places that the Lord has given us access and opportunity? You know, some of it may be like you have access and opportunity to family, right? You have access and opportunity to neighbors. You, if you're in a new place, I mean, you know, there are times like you could, like if you move to a new city, you could get involved, right? A church is a great place to get involved. How could I get involved with people who are 
unsure, you know, not churched. Um, there are things like, well, I went to this college and there's an alumnus group here. You know, maybe you want to get connected with that, you know, that group. Um, if you're thinking about how could I find people to share the gospel with, like the most immediate place that you can kind of have some soft access to is, you know, people that you have some sort of connection with. And for them, this would have been a great, not only the connection, but also the opportunity to come speak. And then they have a, a, a audience that they can reason with from the scripture readily. And we're going to see that. So um, that's kind of where we turn next. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, and for one reason that so, you know, some are saying that there might have been murmuring, you know, people kind of sharing news, is whenever there's like noise and commotion, you see somebody like motion with their hands and then everyone kind of gets their attention and then calms down. And so that's what Paul did because he had to get their attention and then speak to them. And he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. <clears throat> so let's pause there, kind of a break in, in, in his message to them. Um, he starts out in verse 16. Uh, after kind of motioning with them, he kind of directs his words to his audience. Now, who is in his audience? What does it say in verse 16? Who, who is he you know, getting the attention of? Men of Israel, which would indicate what? Or who? Right. So those that are Jews. And then he adds to it, and you who fear God. Now, why do you think he adds that, that qualification, you who fear God? Okay, Gentile God-fearers. Have we met a Gentile God-fearer so far in Acts? Yeah, Cornelius was, was this same person. So typically when you hear this, um, you know, according to one commentator, there's four different audiences that you might have. Let's see if I can get all four right. Um, the first one is Jews, either from Jerusalem or that have been dispersed. And so that would have been the, the men of Israel, those that would have been under the lineage. You have a second group that would have been allowed to be there, and they are Jewish converts. They would have been looked at as Jews, but they would have been uh, non-Jewish that have converted. What was the difference between those who were converted and those who were in Cornelius' state, who just fear God? Circumcision, yeah. So if they took the extra, this, this additional step to be circumcised, they would have been looked at as a Jew because they would have had the sign of the covenant. Um, and so, you know... 
so they would have been accepted. Or you have, like in Cornelius' estate, those who would have followed all of Jewish customs and practices, but hadn't had taken that next step. Those are the God-fearers. Um, uh, again, remember, Cornelius paid his alms, um, was respected amongst the community, um, but he still was a Roman centurion and hadn't taken that, that next step. Um, and again, we can we go into the reasons why. And then the fourth group that could have been accepted were those that were Gentiles that are, are seeking God, that are curious, that are um, you know, desiring to hear uh, the Jewish scriptures talked about. And so in the synagogue, this would have been something allowed. In the temple, uh, you either had to be a Jew or if you were a Gentile, you weren't allowed into certain places in the temple. There are other areas in the temple that you were allowed, but you wouldn't have access to other places. But in the synagogue, it was more of an open area. Uh, for them to for them to teach, and so that's who his audience is uh, that he's addressing. Again, different groups that are among them, but all with a strain of understanding what the Jewish scriptures teach. Um, Paul, when he comes up to speak, and any speaker that would have gotten up that day would have likely commented on the reading of that day. Um, some would say, and so it's hard to kind of say. For a fact, because when you look at the scripture, you're like, okay, I can kind of see that. But he starts to recount a lot of Jewish history, so you don't know exactly which portion of scripture that he's reading. But because of what he starts with and how he'll later end, which we won't get to until next week, um, some would say that this is the 44th reading. Uh, because Deuteronomy 131, and you can look it up for yourself, uh, the reading somewhat parallels a little bit of verse 17. And then you'll read a passage, we'll get to a passage in Isaiah that would be a uh, warning to the people that would have been read on the same day. If it was the 44th reading, it would have been sometime in July or August. Um, so sometime in the, in the summer, uh, <laughs> or at least our summer, uh, for when this would have taken place. Again, just a, a historical, historical tidbit. Not exactly sure what he's reading, but he's probably likely connecting it to what he's going to say. That's typically what the teachers did. So what does he cover in these verses? We don't need to go kind of verse, you know, verse by verse through this grouping, um, but what is he covering as he's going through this portion of Scripture? What's that? Okay, well, he does, he does touch on the Exodus, but he goes beyond that. Okay. Yeah, he pretty much gives a short synopsis of like how God is working in history. Even like I guess, you know, when we started in when I started the first before we got into Acts, I said, well, let's give kind of an overview of the Old Testament. Essentially, you know, um, what we kind of looked at was like how God, you know, moved from one group to another, right? He moved from Abraham, which, you know, he actually like fast forwards past that, which is probably post-Abraham in the reading that was given, and he kind of you know, bounces from there. But then he says, you know, he started out that he, he made you into this nation, right? Um, and then he gave you these judges. And then he gave you a king. And then he gave you this one particular king, and he gave you this covenant. And he's now trying to make kind of this logical leap in succession from like, hey, this is the background about how God is working in your life. Um, it's, it's kind of like if you, if you talk to somebody who is like, you know, I don't know, explain to me about Christianity, you know, kind of like, where do, where do you begin? Um, and so, I don't know, if I asked that question, where would you begin? If somebody said, you know, what's that? Creation. Creation, okay. And there's different ways that you can start, right? There's no, like, one, one way. Sometimes it's good, but if you just went up to somebody on the street, you know, so this is where, like, uh, you know, taking practice but, but witnessing to people on the street 
you could start from a lot of different angles because you don't know where they're thinking about. If you have a relationship with somebody or have at least had a conversation with somebody and it kind of then led to this, you might then be influenced about how you're going to reason. But you might start with creation, all right? God created everything around us, and you might stop and just say, hey, like, I just want you to look if you're outside. Like, if you're in a park, it's a perfect place to be like, I just want you to look at everything that was made. You know, there's an order to everything. And you start reasoning from God to then what God did um, and try to relate kind of this big world to God and then how God relates to this person in their life. And then eventually, what do you want to lead to? Right, you want to lead to the fact that, like, all right, God made everything, but everything's not right, you know. And so you want to start leading them to, like, okay, yeah, I'm tracking with you. There is this God. There is a sense of justice in this world, you know. However, again, you know, you're you're kind of kind of going through this, and then it's like, but but for you personally, and for all of us, we've all you know fallen short of what God desires. This holy God, right? There's evil in this world, and then you start making those connections and making it for them personally. So for a Jewish audience, he's just kind of relate to what God is doing in history. And his point is, like, they know that, you know, you don't have to convince them that they need, um, that they sin. <laughs> you don't have to convince them that they need to do something for it because they would have had that in their sacrificial systems. What you do need to convince them of is that God had promised a Messiah and that this Messiah can be known. And it is only through this Messiah that you can find a Savior. We'll get to that that next week. But in this one, he's starting just kind of like, hey, from this reading that we got, let me kind of like quickly get you to what God is doing. So by that, who is the main focus in this passage? Okay, we haven't gotten to Jesus quite yet. He does mention Jesus, and Jesus will be the focus, especially in the, the next paragraph that we're going to see. But who is who is the main focus? He does say he's Savior Jesus, and he gets to Jesus, but who is really the main focus that we see? It's kind of hard to sometimes pick up on it, but it's really the main focus. David. What's that? David. Okay. King. <laughs> King? And all of these are true. Well, the main focus is, and honestly, it's funny, because I remember when, uh, when going in seminary, and we were reading Daniel, and uh, as we're going through Daniel... Um, you know, the teacher said, like, who's the main, who's the main focus of, of this passage? And you're like, well, it's Daniel. And he's like, the main focus is not Daniel. The main focus is God who is using Daniel. And so even though, yeah, so maybe you kind of set up, the main focus is God, but you don't see that except for the fact that what Paul is doing is presupposing their knowledge of God and what God is doing in every certain circumstance, in every instance, right? He will get to the specific person, David, who will then lead to the specific person, Jesus, who will be their key um, to forgiveness of sins, and that's what we're going to get to next. But right now, he is just saying, you know what, God, because if you look at the verbs, what God says, right, um, the God of this people chose our fathers, right, and then he made these people great. Every verb that is said is what God is doing, right? Um, he put them up in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations. Um, after that, he gave them judges. And then he asked, they asked for a king, and God gave them to him, right? He removed this king, Saul, and then he gave them David, and he promised to David. And so you see that, that no matter what in history, you know, because we get so myopic about things that are going on in our own lives, about the things maybe that we're doing or the situation that we're in, is that really like God is the hand that is directing all these things. And he is 
He's again just saying, God did this, God did this, God did this. And you know, oh yeah, God did this. And then God did John the Baptist. And so he's kind of like slipping in all of these things that just presupposing all the things that they would have agreed to at this up to this point until when? John the Baptist is one that, that came as kind of one of their prophets, right? The Jews would have identified with John the Baptist. He was beheaded. Um, and so he would have maybe even died as a martyr uh, in their eyes um, because... You know, Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, so people hadn't had a stance on who Jesus was. So John the Baptist is still kind of one of theirs, uh, one of their people who was doing some crazy things in the wilderness, but he was baptizing and calling people to repent um, of their sins. And God is just saying, you know what, or Paul is just saying, God had kind of brought up all these things to happen until John the Baptist. But John the Baptist even said himself, you know, it's not me, it's Jesus, and that's what we're going to have to uh, lead up to next time um, and, and pause here. Uh, but, jo- but where we're pausing is where John the Baptist is the last in the line of the prophets um, before Jesus, which assumes right, that the audience knows who John the Baptist is and knows even up way up in the middle of, you know, you'd say middle of nowhere, but middle of Turkey, which is a long ways off, which is surrounded by mountains, which is a long roads to get there that they still have a knowledge of some of the things that are going on in Jerusalem because of their travels or because of the people bringing word back. Um, But they're still giving Saul or Paul an opportunity to speak and to share what's what's on his heart. And really, I think the Lord has just kind of encouraged them after their travel uh, to be able to preach and then to even hear a response from the people, which just is a, uh, you know, foreshadowing. It will be a positive uh, interaction. The next time, it won't necessarily be that way. Um, but as we again say, like, how can we kind of apply this to our own lives in all our day-to-day actions and all our day-to-day things? You know, we know that God is directing us and moving us, um, but we still use practical ways and reasons to interact with others, and we should leverage that because God has given each one of us unique people, unique spheres of influence to be able to share. Uh, this message of salvation. All right, any closing comments, thoughts? Man, good, good.